Good morning. One of the people that I appreciate most in all of the world actually attends our church here, and it's my sister, Jessica. There's lots of reasons why I feel that way about her, but one of the reasons is that she introduced me to my wife in 2009. Uh, At that time, um, my now wife, Katie, lived in Toledo, and she was working for an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of Toledo, And uh, we started dating in the summer, and so I spent much of that summer and the fall and the winter and then into the spring driving back and forth from Toledo. I could almost do it with my eyes closed. And uh, Katie and I grew closer and closer, and at some point along the way, I realized uh, that I loved her. And one afternoon, I was in Toledo, and and Katie and I were going for a walk in her neighborhood, and uh, it was just the perfect day. The weather was great. It was all things in the world were wonderful, and I decided on that walk, I'm going to tell her that I love her. And I was about three sentences away from saying those words when Katie must have sensed that it was coming. And uh, she stopped, and so I I stopped, and she looked me right in the eye and very kindly said to me these exact words. I wrote them down. (laughs) She said, don't say it unless you're willing to do something about it. And then we kept walking. And I was left to ponder what she meant. (laughs) And what I realized later is that what she was saying is that love has to be more than just a feeling. It's got to be more than just a sentiment or an emotion, but that love, if it is really genuine, it should be rooted and grounded in commitment. It's one thing to say that you love me, she was saying, but it's an entirely different thing to back that up. Now, in a similar way, when Christians say that they love God, what should that look like? What should that commitment mean? How is it that we back it up? And today... Jesus is going to answer those questions, and he's going to describe for us what the extent and the quality of love is that God expects from us. And this whole discussion in Matthew 12 is uh, brought up very simply by a question from a man who was a scribe. Now, you might not know much about who the scribes were in the New Testament, but they're really a very interesting group of people. Uh, In the Old Testament, they were the people who studied uh, the law and meticulously transcribed it. In fact, they are one of the reasons that we have dependable copies of the scriptures because they took such effort and and time in in making uh, copies. And so we can certainly uh, thank them for that. But at one point, things began to go south with the scribes. And the scribes were often affiliated with a group of people who were called the Pharisees. And what happened is that both groups began to add their own interpretations and practices to the law. And then they began to elevate those interpretations and practices above the law themselves. And this drove Jesus crazy. He took great issue with this. And not only that, but what the scribes would often do is they would follow the letter of the law exactly, but they would totally avoid the heart of the law. And this 
caused a, a lot of conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees and another group who were called the Sadducees. And what would happen is often the scribes and others would come up to Jesus with questions that were designed to try to trip him up. But what's interesting about this scribe in particular is that he comes, it seems, very genuinely and sincerely and asks Jesus a question which, if you think about it, should really be on all of our minds too. It's a great question. He says, which command is the most important of all? Jesus, what is the most important thing that I ought to do? Now, the scribes, interestingly, they used to kind of, I guess for kicks, they would take the law of the Old Testament and they would have these debates where they would try to rank them from the most important to the least important. And, and different people had different ideas about which things were, were more and, and less important. And so this question from this scribe probably comes out of that practice. What he's saying to Jesus is, what do you think about that? How would you rank them? Which one would be top on your list? And Jesus answers his question straight out of the book of Deuteronomy from the law of Moses itself. And it begins with the statement that we see in verse 29. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, and then he quotes the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this phrase right there is called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word uh, for the word hear. And the Shema was something that was recited by faithful Jews every morning and every night. And it's a declaration that in Israel, there's only one God. This was in contrast to the other religions of the time. Israel was a monotheistic faith. And they were to be exclusively devoted to God alone. Uh, David, in 2 Samuel 7, he, he gives this wonderful prayer, and he says, For there is none like you. There is no God beside you. And that's what the Shema means, too. And so every morning, a faithful Jew would wake up and say, There is only one God, our God. And every night when they went to bed, they would remember the same thing. And out of this reflection, naturally then flows the next thing that Jesus is going to say. Since there is only one God, then it makes sense that we be devoted exclusively only to Him. And... What we'll see here is that Jesus is going to describe what it means to be exclusively devoted to him. And in this passage, I just want to concentrate on the next verse this morning. We're just going to look uh, strictly at verse uh, 30. Because here, what we see is that every, is, is Jesus telling us what it means to love God. The extent and the quality of love that we ought to have for him. And he, he answers that in verse 30. He says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. Now what Jesus mentions there is he mentions four areas that encapsulate absolutely everything that we are as people. 
And what I want to do, first of all, is I just want to think about each one of those areas uh, separately today. However, it's very important to realize that these areas aren't really completely separate. They're all kind of mixed together to form who a person is. And it's kind of a little bit like uh, cake batter. You can't just uh, pull out all of the ingredients because they're all mixed together. And yet, it's still helpful to consider uh, the parts. So we're going to think about each of the four parts, and then I have some just closing thoughts that I I think will be helpful, hopefully, for us to reflect on. The first thing that Jesus says is that we ought to love the Lord with all our heart. Now, the word that is used for heart here does not describe the organ that pumps blood through our circulatory system. But you already knew that, right? And the reason is, is that just like Jesus did in his time, in our day, we use the word heart sometimes as an expression or a figure of speech. In our time, it's usually associated with our feelings or emotions. We, we might say she loved him with all her heart. Or we might say, put your heart into it. Give it some, some, some effort. Or, or we might say some emotion to it. But in the Bible, even though the expression is somewhat uh, similar, that isn't the meaning of the word. The closest English word that we have to the biblical word heart in this context is probably the word center. And so your heart is the very center of who you are. It is the controlling power of your life. It's your will. It's the place inside of you that every one of your decisions is made and where every one of your actions in life are initiated. So I want you to just, as an example, um, think for a minute about the American military force. Okay, right now they are spread out all over the world. And you've got the Army, you've got the Marine Corps, you've got the Navy, you've got the Air Force, and you've got the Coast Guard. And all of them are active in different ways. All of them are doing different things. And all of these things are happening all at once. But directing all of these forces, if you follow back the chain of command, what you will find is that at the center, there is the commander-in-chief. And the commander-in-chief holds something that is called command and control. The commander-in-chief has total authority over everything. And, at least in theory, every major and minor facet of military life is ultimately directed and supervised by this one person. Well, in the Bible, the heart is the commander-in-chief. The book of Proverbs says that the heart is the wellspring of life. And what that means is that everything that we do flows out of the heart and can be traced directly back to it. And this is so important. And yet we rarely stop to really think about it or consider it. I mean, what it tells us is that there are heart-level motivations behind every single choice that we make in life. That all of the things that we're happy about and all the things that we're sad about Our insecurities, the things that discourage us, our affections and our addictions, every single thing about us comes from someplace. And the Bible would say that that place is the heart. And what God says here is that at the deepest center of who you are, at the wellspring of your life, he says, 
That's the place that I want you to love me from. I want your heart. And I want your whole heart. And the problem for us, of course, is is that often our hearts don't want God back. Uh, Even when they do, sometimes it's for the wrong reasons and and motivations. Uh, There's a man named Charles Spurgeon who was a great preacher and and writer. And and he wrote a little parable or a story uh, about this that I wanted to read for you this morning. It's relatively short. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard this and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Isn't that so true of the heart sometimes? Uh, The prophet Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the rhetorical answer to that question is that only God can. That just like the king in that story, God alone is the only one who's able to discern our hearts. And what the psalm tells us is something that should really kind of terrify us a little bit. It tells us that God is actively searching the hearts of all people. Did you know that right now, even as you breathe the breath that you are breathing, God is searching your heart. And that God is able to trace back each one of our words and our thoughts and our actions all the way to the source, all the way to the wellspring inside of us. We may say that we love God, but only God knows if we truly do. And he calls us to love him with all of our heart. He asks us, too, to love him with all of our soul and and, and defining exactly what that means, what is meant by the word soul, isn't necessarily easy. Uh, The Bible does teach us that every person has a soul and that the soul is distinct from the body. We're told that the soul 
animates the body and and it enables uh, the body to act and to relate. But when the body dies, as it always does, and it falls down to the earth, the Bible is very clear that the soul lives on eternally forever. And so the soul seems to be, in the Bible, everything about us that is not physical. Uh, One possible way to see the distinction, although you don't want to distinguish them too carefully, is that if the heart is the deepest part of me, if it's my center, my my area within me of, of core control, if it's my will, then the soul seems to be all of me. It's my complete humanity, my total personhood. It is everything that I am. And so what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our soul? Well, it means to love him with our whole person. It means that I love him with the total package. Uh, I remember going out to lunch once with a teenager. I think it might have even just been coffee and um, we were sitting there talking, and this was when, when um, smartphones were kind of, you know, coming into style. And, and uh, I, it was one of the first conversations where I was talking with somebody who, who, was, who just kept checking their phone constantly. And what I felt as I was talking with this person was they're kind of half with me in this conversation, but the other half of them is with, you know, 2,000 of their friends on, on Facebook. They're just going back and forth and, and, and back and forth. And in a similar way, when it comes for our love to our love for God, I think what's meant by this is that we are meant to be all in, 100%. Love for the Lord is meant to be encapsulated in absolutely everything we do and every part of who we are, not just in certain compartments or spheres, or settings, or in certain relationships within our our life. Uh, David said, let all that I am praise the Lord. And, And I think that that's the idea. That I am to be one united person who loves God with everything that I am. And again, this is an incredibly challenging statement. Jesus says, love the Lord with all your soul. Everything you have. We're to love the Lord with all our heart. We're to love the Lord with all our soul. And next he says that we are to love the Lord with all of our mind. Now this, uh, of course, is the area of ourselves that is most connected with our thinking. And so this would include things like our intellect and our reasoning, uh, our attitudes, at least in part, are, are, are part of our mind and our understanding. But what's interesting is that, that most of us just naturally would not necessarily connect love with the Lord with our minds. We would think of it as being something more that comes from the heart. And, and I've heard people say things like this, uh, like this before. You may have thought this or, or said this yourself. You, you may have thought, you know, when it comes for my, to my love for the Lord, I don't need a lot of information to love God. Uh, I've decided with my life that I just want to have a very simple, very childlike faith because I know that all that matters to God is what's in my heart. Well, this verse here would compete with that thinking. In fact, saying this is, is, is a lot like a, uh, if you were to meet a, a young couple who are wildly in love and they tell you that they're, they're getting engaged. And, and you know about them, though, that neither of them have jobs. 
you know that they're both totally broke and, and in debt, and one of them has a serious health condition. And so you say, wow, you're getting engaged. Well, what are your plans? And you realize they really can't tell you. The only thing that they're able to say is, love will see us through. And you say to them, wait a minute, isn't that a song lyric? Are you holding all of the hope for your marriage on a song lyric? You say to them, the love that you guys have for each other is tremendous and wonderful. I'm not disagreeing with that at all, but it's going to be cold this winter. You're going to need a place to stay, and it's not going to be my house. And you say to them, and did you know that people need food to survive? You're going to need some of that. How are you going to do that? Love alone is not going to be enough for you to handle and endure the realities of life. And to think that love alone will simply do that is just emotionalism. If there's not a foundation underneath this marriage so that it can be grounded in reality, it's very likely to fall apart. And in the same way, our thinking is the foundation on which our love for God is built. It is impossible to love God rightly in our heart if we don't know him for who he is in our minds. So how do we grow in loving God with our minds? What should we do? What does that even look like to love the Lord with our our minds? Well, God has chosen to reveal himself primarily through words. Uh, Most importantly, of course, we have uh, the Bible, but he's given us the great gift of having teaching that's, that's both oral, it's spoken, it's written in other books that are written to help explain the Bible. We have words through the encouragement from other people. That's one of the reasons why we have community groups here. And so what that means is that to grow in our relationship, excuse me, to grow in loving God with our minds, what we need to do is we need to commit ourselves to reading and listening to his words and then considering what it is that we've seen and what it is that we've heard. Now, you may feel, and, I, and I've felt this too, I, I think we, we all feel this at times, that it's really difficult to find the time and the energy to do that. Sometimes when we go to read the Bible, we don't feel like we understand it all, and we don't feel like it's easy, and I can certainly relate to that at times as well. Do you want to know something that's so important to understand about the Bible? Is that the Bible was written for everyone. The Bible wasn't just written for a certain exclusive group. In fact, the psalm says that that the Bible was written to make wise the simple And so if you think of yourself as a simple person, as I do, that ought to be very encouraging. The Bible was written for ordinary, everyday, intellectually average, simple people like most of us who are in this room. I mean, if you think about it, most of the Old Testament in the Bible was written as a story. It's just a story. Jesus, who taught the Gospels, most of his teaching is just story. Stories. We have four books of stories that he told. The Bible contains songs and it contains poetry and it contains letters. It's written in a way that's so imaginative and humorous and true and gripping and deeply meaningful. 
Bible is written for everyone. However, growing in our understanding of it does require thought. You can't get around it. And and unfortunately, many people want to skip that part. Um, I want you to think uh, for a minute about the process of making coffee. Okay, Many of you are coffee drinkers. Coffee is really interesting because it only requires two ingredients. It only requires coffee, grounded up coffee, and water. And yet what's interesting about it is that if you take that grounded up coffee and you put it in the water and then you drink it, you are going to be severely disappointed. And the reason is because there's a middle step. What you have to do with the the grounds and the water is you've got to heat it up and and you need to spend the time brewing it so that the coffee can percolate and then when you drink it, it's wonderful. One of the best substances on earth, most of us would agree. But the thing is, if you skip that middle step of the process, you will every time sabotage the end result. Now, many people approach reading the Bible in that, in that first way that I just described. They pick up the Bible, and they're hoping for an immediate emotional boost, right? Do you ever go to the Bible just for a quick pick-me-up? God, I need a shot in the arm. I'm having a rough day. Give me something. Or, God, I have this specific problem or issue in my life that I'm dealing with. Open it up. Resolve it. But the problem with that is what they're hoping will happen is that they'll be able to take the Bible and immediately get it over here so that it can speak to their heart. But the problem is the Bible is a lot like coffee grounds. You can't skip that middle step. It needs to be brewed. It needs to percolate. It needs to be thought about and reflected on and considered Before we can apply it, we've got to understand it. And if we skip that process in the middle, then we will sabotage the end result every time. And this is where loving God with the mind comes in. What Christians are meant to do is not to read the Bible to change their hearts. Christians are meant to read the Bible so that the Bible can inform their minds and as by the Spirit's power, we reflect on it, consider it, try to understand it and apply it, then our hearts can feast on it. It becomes fuel for us for our lives. And loving God with our minds does mean that you sometimes got to work at it. It means that it will take time and energy and effort, and it requires a person who's willing to dedicate themselves to that over their lifetime. I mean, this process can be a slow process that requires incredible patience, but Jesus said, this is one of the ways that you express your love to God, is you love him with your mind. Loving God with our minds means that we devote ourselves to the pursuit of him. It's a commitment that we make through our lifetime to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is and and what he says and how he made me and how he wants me to live and, and be involved in my world so that we can take that knowledge then and apply it into our hearts and into our lives. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. 
And finally, he says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. Now, to love someone with our strength means to use what we have on their behalf. Right? If I uh, want to help somebody with my strength, it means I take something that I could do for myself and instead I do it for them. And so to love God with our strength means that we love him with our potential. We love him with our capability. We love him with our power in life. You, you might think of it this way, that if loving God with our soul is to love God uh, with everything we have that isn't physical, then loving God with our strength is to love him with everything that is physical. This includes our bodies, but it's not limited just to our bodies. It also involves loving God with our time and our energy and our resources and our plans and our abilities. Part of our strength is our possessions, and so this would include our homes and our cars and our bank accounts and our cell phones. And what we are to do is we are to use these things that God has given us for noble purposes only and to invest them sacrificially into the kingdom of God. Basically, what it means to love God with your strength is just to be a good, faithful steward of everything in life that God has given you, every resource you have. So Jesus says, I want you to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I want us just to consider two things about this verse, verse 30. The first is this, that when we read the Bible, one thing that's really helpful to recognize is that when the Bible repeats words, those words are very important. Those words are always repeated for a reason, and those words ought to particularly stand out to us. Now, in this verse that we've looked at this morning, verse 30, there is a word that is repeated four times in just a very short span. Does anybody see what that word is? It's the word all. And so what we're given here in verse 30 is we are given a composite picture of everything that we are and everything that we have. And then we are told by God, I want you to love me with absolutely all of it. God wants us to love him with all that we are, with absolutely nothing that we hold back or keep to himself. I want all of your love, all of it, he says. And secondly, we need to see this, that we are not in this passage just invited to love God like this. We are commanded to love God like this. And not only that, But this is, Jesus says, the very top commandment. This is the most important thing in all of the world. There is nothing that is more significant to God about you than the extent and the quality of your love for him. This, God says, is going to be the chief measure of your life. This is the meaning of life right here. How much and how deeply do you love me? So let me ask you this question this morning. How are you doing with this? When it comes to loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind 
and all of your strength. Are you? Do you love him with your all? How are you doing with that? If I were to ask myself that question and answer it honestly, I could say very easily, not well. I fall terribly short on this. In fact, I I bet if you were to choose the best moment in all of my life, I still couldn't say that I've loved God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And I think if all of us would just evaluate ourselves honestly against this for one minute, what we should see so clearly is that our hearts, just as Jeremiah said, are desperately sick. And that our souls is, are, are corrupt. There's something that's wrong for, with us. There's something that does not want to love God in this way. I think if we're honest, we would see that our minds are disinterested in this. Even many of us this morning have just struggled to just kind of even get engaged with this. And we would see that our strength is so often wasted on things that are foolish and meaningless. Well, this statement that Jesus gives that he takes from Moses, this great commandment, it really ought to do two things for us. And the first of all, it ought to do this. It ought to shatter any hope that we might have of standing before God worthy on our own. Absolutely shatter it. And that should bother us. That should convict us. That should humble us. That should honestly even make us afraid. The most important thing in life, we do so poorly. And what it shows us with crystal clarity is that we are hopelessly desperate before God. That we desperately need his grace. That we desperately need the gospel. That we desperately need a savior. Secondly, what it should do for us is it should bring joy to our hearts that God sent us one. It ought to make us so grateful and alive that Jesus sent us his son. Reflecting on this, a man named R.C. Sproul uh, wrote these words, reflecting on, on this passage. He says this, he says, Consider Jesus. Was there any portion of the Lord's heart that was not completely in love with the Father? Did Jesus restrain his soul from affection for his Father? Was there anything that the Father revealed that Jesus ignored as being unworthy of his attention? Was his affection for his Father a spineless, weak affection? Or did he manifest the most powerful, strong affection for the Father ever seen on the planet? You know the answer to those questions. The Lord Jesus kept the great commandment perfectly. Every second of his life, he loved the Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. Had he not done that, he would not have fulfilled the law of God and would not have been worthy to save himself, let alone save us. Look at your own heart and your own soul and your own mind and your own strength. Isn't it amazing that Jesus did it? 
Isn't it amazing that at every moment, Jesus loved God with his all? Doesn't that bring you awe? Doesn't that make you want to worship him? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus fulfilled the great commandment and that thanks to the cross, thanks to his death and resurrection, if you are a Christian in this room, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again so that you will too, the Bible teaches that he fulfilled the great commandment in your place. Every way that you haven't loved God, Jesus has. And this is such wonderful news. This ought to bring us such great freedom and joy. It ought to alleviate our fear and give us hope and peace and gratitude. But you know, it's not just something that we rest in, even though it is that fully. What it also ought to do inside of us is it ought to propel us based on what Jesus has done to be absolutely unsatisfied in our lives with anything less than full devotion. And I know we're not going to get there. I know there's never going to be a moment where I'm going to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. But we ought to, out of gratitude and joy for all that he's done, we ought to begin to move towards it. And what's true is that the gospel, this freedom that Jesus bought for us with his own life, is the only soil in in, in which loving God can really take root. Because what we begin to realize is that God, the one God, is actually deserving of this kind of love. The only reason he asks for it is because he deserves it, because it is right and it is best. And so out of the hope that we have, the joy that we have, the affection that we have for our Savior, would we learn to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? Father, it's so hard to be confronted with our failure. I don't like seeing things inside of myself that are painful. I I don't like uh, to even consider the fact of how I've let you down with my lack of of genuine love and affection for you. But I'll, I'll tell you, it does make me desperate for you. It does make me desperate for Jesus and it does make me appreciate so much that he did for me the one thing I could never do on my own, which is to stand rightly before you. Thank you that Jesus came to the cross to die for our sins and that even as our sins are are forgiven by that, that that you also uh, fill your children with, with Jesus' righteousness. And he was so righteous and so good and And to think that that gets credited to my account is amazing and incredible. Father, I pray that you would make us a church family who is is not satisfied just going through the motions. I pray that we would be a place where, where, where people recognize that even though we're prone to it, we just don't want to be checking boxes of our faith. We don't want to just know a few facts about the Bible and and put on a good image and, and be nice people. We want to love you from the center 
of, of who we are. And we want to love you with all that we are. And we pray just that humbly you would teach us that. We know that that's not going to happen overnight. And so we pray that we would dedicate to you our hearts and our souls and our mind and our strength. And that you would teach us what it means to look like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.